Church history clearly shows us that nations and leaders have risen up in an attempt to stamp out the gospel. You see, the hatred of Christians didn't start with the papal opposition in the 16th century. It didn't start with Diocletian in the 4th century, and it didn't even start with Nero in 54 AD. You see, it's been going on since the birth of the church following Pentecost. And the early church faced persecution after persecution, and we're going to see one of those persecutions this morning from the Sanhedrin Council. And brothers and sisters, I want to point out that all of these persecutions have one thing in common. And this is a pretty big spoiler alert here. No matter the unbelief, hatred, and severe torture that the Christian church will face or has faced, the gospel will not be stamped out. God's glory will continue to spread to all nations through the church despite the devil and his adversaries. So we're going to see one of the earliest attempts to stamp out the gospel this morning from the Sanhedrin Council in Acts 5, 17 through 42. This epic account is broken up into three scenes, and these are going to be kind of our boundaries, our scenes this morning. So the first one is the apostles' prison break. The second scene we'll see this morning is the Sanhedrin's intense shake. And I'm going to continue the rhyming scheme here, so just bear with me. Finally, our last scene is Gamaliel's faulty take. All right, so we have, and this is all a piece of cake, the apostles' prison break, the Sanhedrin's intense shake, and finally, Gamaliel's faulty take. So if you would stand up for the reading of Acts 5, 17 through 42. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him, who belonged to the party of the Sadducees, were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell the people all about this life. Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Well, when the high priest and those who were with them arrived, they convened the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, and sent orders to the jail to have them brought. But when the servants got there, they did not find them in the jail. So they returned and reported, We found the jail securely locked, with the guards standing in front of the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. Someone came and reported to them, Look, the men you put in jail are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the commander went with the servants and brought them in without force because they were afraid the people might stone them. After they brought them in, they had them stand before the Sanhedrin and the high priest asked, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. 
We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Well, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was respected by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered these men to be taken outside for a little while. He said to them, Men of Israel, be careful about what you're about to do to these men. Some time ago, Thaddeus ran, he rose up claiming to be somebody, and a group of about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed, and all his followers were dispersed and came to nothing. After this man, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and attracted a following. He also perished, and all his followers were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. For if this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. Well, they were persuaded by him, and after they called in the apostles and had them flogged, they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and released them. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. You may be seated. All right, so we come to our very first scene this morning, the Apostles' prison break. So look with me at verses 17 through 18. Then the high priest rose up. He and all who were with him who belonged to the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. So they arrested the apostles and put them in public jail. So we need to stop and think about this word then. Luke is signaling to the readers that this jealousy and hatred of the Jewish leadership stems from something that previously had happened. What is he referring to? Well, I don't think it's just one thing. I think it's a culmination of many things. You see, where we are in Acts 5, remember Acts 1, Jesus said to the apostles, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And so we have this marching order from Jesus to the church. And the apostles, at least up to this point, are still in Jerusalem proclaiming the gospel. But something that's unique about the apostles being in Jerusalem is this. It's that the whole city of Jerusalem thought very highly of these Christians. And you might be wondering, well, Bryce, where do you see that? Well, look with me at chapter 5, verses 13 through 14. The apostles were preaching the gospel, which was accompanied by many signs and miracles. And the text reads, no one else dared to join them, but the people spoke well of them. Believers were added to the Lord in increasing number, both men and women. So Luke is showing that the city of Jerusalem had this type of fear, reverence, approval, and sense of admiration for the apostles. And so to put it simply, Jerusalem, which once voted predominantly Jewish leaders, are now in favor of the apostles. And this movement that the apostles have created is happening right before the Jewish leader's very eyes. And look at me. They do not like it at all. 
You see this change of loyalty greatly angered the Jewish leaders, provoking them to once again not only throw Peter and John in prison, but throw the rest of the apostles in prison. And don't miss this. They were thrown in a public prison where everyone in Jerusalem could see them. The Jewish leaders wanted to make a visible public point to all the people. We are against everything that these men stand for, and we have the authority to stamp it out. Well, at least they thought they had the power to stamp out the gospel. Look with me at verses 19 through 20. But an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail during the night and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and tell, all, tell the people all about this life. It's like you can't make this stuff up. This is better than any Hollywood movie that we might see. In my opinion, this is one of the most riveting and inspiring scenes in all of the book of Acts. I want us to try to enter into this narrative to better draw out exactly what is happening. I think this might help us kind of set the stage of where the apostles are in the account. So picture yourself. You're sitting in a jail cell in the middle of Jerusalem. This isn't your first stint in jail. No, it's your second. You have already been threatened once by the Jewish leadership and now being thrown back in prison awaiting a second trial has to mean at best 40 lashes less than one and at worst martyrdom. Yet in the middle of the night, the jail cells fling open and an angel of the Lord comes to you saying, go back to the place that you were arrested, to the place that the Sanhedrin took you, go back to that place and proclaim the gospel. It's like you got to think for a second, if we were in that position, it's like, man, our homes aren't in Jerusalem, our homes are in Galilee. It's like our businesses aren't here. Our fishing business is in Galilee. Do I really want to go back to the place where I got arrested in the first place? Do I really want to risk my life? Do you see the pivotal moment for the early church at right this moment? You see the apostles, how will they respond to the opposition? Will they obey the Lord and go preach? Or will they revert to comfort and ease through fleeing? Well, we don't have to wait very long to see what happens because the very next verse reads, Hearing this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. There wasn't even a moment of hesitation. The apostles heard and obeyed the command of the Lord. They immediately went to partake in the exact same thing that put them in prison in the first place, preaching, as the ESV translates, all the words of this life. The apostles were proclaiming the gospel that sinners can find life in the resurrected Savior. They were called to herald all the words of this life. And you might want to circle all because I think the word is very important. It's very clear that every single part of the gospel is essential to the whole. We proclaim the gospel and we proclaim it in its entirety. All right, so I want to think through this angel's command to the apostles because I think at least two applications arise from us to go and preach all the words of this life. So first, 
There is Catholicity in the command. And when I use the word Catholicity, I'm not referring to anything about the Roman Catholic Church. No, Catholicity means universality, something that we all share. And so to put it simply, we as Christians today share the same command with the apostles. Now, there's certainly numerous differences between us and the apostles, yet the command to preach all the words of this life is shared by both of us. You see, this wasn't optional for the apostles, and it certainly isn't optional for us today. It's clear that every Christian is called to be heralders of the gospel, given this message of reconciliation to take to the highways and the byways. But I do want to say that our gospel arena is going to look different. It's not going to be a first a first century um, temple that we're going to proclaim, right? It's going to be different. It could be your um, teacher's lounge or your PTA meetings, your ER wing, your college study group, your gym, your neighborhood, or your country club. It's like the context is going to look vastly different, but the command stays the same. Go and preach all the words of this life. All right, so there's Catholicity in the command. There's also contentment in the command. The apostles were uncertain what was going to happen the next morning when they showed up in the temple to preach the gospel. Again, they were thrown in prison for that very reason. Yet there was contentment in obeying the command, and they trusted God with the outcome. NBC, is this our posture and our mindset? Or do we ever allow ourselves actually to not share the gospel because of perceived outcome that might take place? It's like we have these hypothetical things running in our head. Like, man, if I share the gospel with my friend, our relationship might never be the same. Or if I share the gospel with my coworker, I might get fired. Or if I share the gospel with this mother... Well, she might um, blackball my kid from coming to birthday parties and playdates. Or if I share the gospel with my friend at school, this study group might ostracize me. You see, none of these things have actually taken place, but we start to perceive it in our heads, and it actually can deter us from sharing the gospel. You see, the apostles, what they did, which I think is very instructive for us, is that they obeyed the command, and they trusted God with the outcome. I pray we would do the exact same thing. It's like these things could happen to us. They very well might. I'm not saying they won't, but I am saying I would rather be on the side of proclaiming the gospel than just sitting on the sidelines. Let's obey God and trust Him with the outcome. All right, so speaking of outcomes, we come to our very next scene, the Sanhedrin's intense shake where we will see the capture and trial of the apostles for preaching the gospel. So I'm going to try to summarize a lot of this section because it's fairly lengthy. But the Sanhedrin, the full council of the Israelites, which was made up of both Sadducees and Pharisees, came together for the second trial of the apostles. You see, they sent their guards to bring the prisoners to the stand, only to find that the jail was securely locked with the guards standing in front of the door and no one was inside. Again, you can't make this stuff up. Verse 24 reads, As the captain of the temple police and the chief priests heard these things, they were baffled about them, wondering what would come of this. I want you guys to see the irony in the story because it's very thick. 
the Sadducees who held the majority of the council, you see, they represented the theologically liberal sect of Jerusalem. You see, they didn't believe in angels, miraculous signs, resurrection, eternal life, heaven, or hell. And remember, we read in verse 17 that it was the Sadducees who were filled with jealousy and rose up against the apostles. It was the Sadducees who were ready to stamp out the gospel. It was the Sadducees who said it was impossible for somebody to be raised from the dead and that angels were not real. Yet it was the Sadducees who sat there befuddled because the doors were locked and yet there were no prisoners inside. Do you see the irony here? But more importantly, do you see God's omnipotence versus the limited power of the Sadducees? You see, the Sadducees' public jail and temple police are no match for the sovereign Lord of the universe. It's like the Sadducees are trying to put out a forest fire with a single bucket of water. Don't miss this. God's act shows exactly whose side he's on. Don't be confused. God is sovereignly declaring that his favor and his presence are with his people, the apostles, and not the Sadducees. This might have been new news for many people in Jerusalem, yet it's obvious that God's unlimited power is behind his apostles, behind his message, and that message will not be stamped out. All right, so let's pick it up in verse 28 after the apostles have been rearrested and are standing trial before the Sanhedrin. So these are the opening words by the council. It says in verse 28, Didn't we strictly order you not to teach in this man's name? Look, you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. The trial has convened. The opening statement and accusation have been pronounced. What's the charge? Well, it seems twofold. First, the Jewish leadership ordered the council not to teach in Jesus' name. Well, are they guilty in the eyes of the Sanhedrin? Absolutely. It's obvious because Jerusalem had been filled up with the gospel. We have caught Henry a number of times playing in this fig plant we have in our playroom. It's like he always plays in it, then he comes to our room with like dirt all over his hands, and I don't even know how he gets it in his hair, but it's in his hair, it's on his shirt, and then he leads us into the playroom, and we see dirt all over the floor. It's like everything about this scene screams guilty. And so it's like the council looking, looking at the apostles with dirt all over their hands, dirt all over their clothes, dirt in their hair, because they've literally taken the whole fig tree plant and dumped it over. Everything about this in the eyes of this Sanhedrin screams guilty. It's not only that they are guilty, but in the eyes of this Sanhedrin, they are culpable and responsible to the utmost degree. It's so obvious they have not listened to the Jewish leadership, and Jerusalem being filled up with the gospel is the most clear-cut evidence to convict them. I want us to see this because this is kind of ironic too. It's like the Sanhedrin in some ways are giving these people a progress report. Remember in Acts 1-8 when Jesus says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and to the ends of the earth. It's like the Sanhedrin's looking at them and saying, what Jesus commanded you to do, you're doing. A plus in this progress report. And it's evidenced by all Jerusalem being filled up with the gospel. 
You kind of got to think that the apostles might have been like pumping fists on one another. It's like, yeah, praise God. It's like what Jesus said we're actually doing. So that's a little side note. But secondly, the last charge was far worse than the first, yet also true. The high priest charges the apostles with determining to make the Jewish leadership guilty of this man's blood. I think one of the saddest scenes here is this high priest. He wouldn't even bring himself to say the name of Jesus. And you see hypocrisy on center stage because less than 50 days ago, these Sadducees and these Pharisees were screaming to Pilate, this man's blood be on us and on our children. See, what Peter was doing was charging these Sadducees and Pharisees with what, with what they already charged themselves. Hypocrisy on center stage. All right, so the high priest, he is given his charges. Now, what's the apostle's response? Let's look at 29 through 32. Peter and the apostles replied, We must obey God rather than people. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered by hanging on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom you have given to those who obey him. So Peter, speaking on the behalf of the apostles, right out of the gate, gives this word to a council that should have been an earth-shattering realization. And you might be asking, well, what is earth-shattering about Peter's statement? Well, it would be like our brother Joshua at our members' meeting standing up and saying, brothers and sisters, keep away from sexual immorality. Well, then Hunter Sample comes up and says, we must obey God rather than men. It's like that would never happen. Why would that never happen? Because what Joshua is saying to keep away from sexual immorality is the will of God. Hunter would never have to say that. Yet listen to what Peter says. We must obey God rather than men. Peter says what he says because the council is directly opposing the commands of God. And if you're directly opposing the commands of God, you are directly opposing God himself. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. The apostles are not the only ones on trial. The trial is now flipped. The apostles are starting to lay charge after charge to the Sanhedrin, saying, this is what you're doing. You are opposing the Lord. You're going to have to give an account. All right. So thinking about Peter's opening statement, we must obey God rather than people, I think it's really instructive for us on how we relate to delegated authority. Delegated authority is like parents or church leaders or the state. And delegated authority is good. It helps us make decisions in a particular jurisdictions, and Christians should submit to delegated authority. Yet, if the state ever came to us and said, you should not gather for no justifiable reason, or you must worship other gods, or you must burn your sacred scriptures. Well, Peter's telling us right here that we must rebel, because if we do abide in the state, well, we'll be opposing God, and God's authority rules over all authority, and so we obey God rather than people. And so that's helpful in thinking how Christians relate to the state. All right, so back to the passage. 
Now we need to ask ourselves, although the Sanhedrin council pronounced the apostles guilty, what crimes had they actually committed? What laws had these men broken? None. They're being taken before the Sanhedrin because of preaching the gospel. These are innocent men standing before a guilty and wicked council. And Peter is about to lay charge after charge, but I don't want us to miss the grace and the mercy that he shows this council. I think it's unbelievable. He surely gives them truth, but he also gives them great grace too. All right, so let's dive in. So Peter starts by saying that the God of our fathers raised up Jesus. And I think he could be alluding to two things, either Jesus' incarnation or the resurrection. And as I've been studying, I think Peter right here is trying to show the council that Jesus was prophesied all throughout the Old Testament. God the Father raised up Jesus. Your Old Testament Bibles are pointing to this Jesus that you murdered and you treated him like a common criminal by hanging him on a tree and peter's usage of the word tree harkens back to deuteronomy 21 23 that states anyone hung on a tree is under god's curse his death as the jewish leaders advocated was an accursed death and Peter isn't backing down here, for he doubles down on what the Jewish leaders had done. They put Jesus to death. What you despised, what you shamed, what you reviled, what you spat on, what you murdered, God placed him at his right hand as ruler and savior. It's like Peter is not backing down. He's not afraid. He does not fear man. He's looking at him saying, this is what you've done. Charge after charge. But again, he doesn't stop there. The, where he landed the plane really left me in awe this whole week. This is what he says. He says, God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. I mean, you got to think about this. Like, let's be real. If somebody threw you in prison, right, and they threaten your friends, and more than all of that, they blaspheme the God you love, it's like, how would you respond to that? I think predominantly most of us would absolutely tell the council that what they've done, they will have to give an account for. And it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Like, I think that's what most people would say. At least, I think that's what I would say. Yet, where Peter goes, it, it's almost hard to believe. You see, Peter starts there, but he goes further to share about repentance and forgiveness that can be found in Jesus. He gives his enemies grace, something that they do not deserve, because the apostles were recipients of this grace, something that they did not earn and something that they did not deserve. Peter was calling for a response, a response that these unworthy men would respond in repentance and faith to Jesus. Is that not unbelievable to think about? And Christian, I think this bids the question for us, have we given up on our most, most hard-hearted non-Christian friends? Have we ceased speaking about spiritual things with them because we've labeled them as a lost cause? 
I think in this passage, Peter is instructing us not to be the judge and arbiter of God's grace. Keep speaking all the words of life into their lives, even if they continue to reject the gospel. You never know when the Lord might open up their eyes to the gospel. And I think this would be great for us, NBC, to talk amongst one another after the service and even throughout this week is sharing about friends that we might have given up on and encouraging one another to keep speaking all the words of this life and to pray for one another. And quickly, I want to say visitors here who are, non, who are non-Christians, I just want to say welcome. We are happy that you're here. I think the cat's out of the bag that our hope for you is that you would be a follower of Jesus Christ. Our hope for you is that you would repent and believe in Jesus and find life in his name. And you can talk to any member after the service and they would be happy to tell you about what it means to be a Christian. All right, so we talked about the apostles' defense. Now, what was the response of the Jewish leaders when Peter calls them to repent and believe in the gospel? Did they repent? Not exactly. Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. If you're thinking to yourself, yeah, it's like this seems a bit unrational, irrational. Unbelief is certainly irrational. It's like Peter is graciously explaining to these men how their sins can be blotted out, yet they respond in hatred and in rage. And brothers and sisters, I just want want to say, don't be surprised when unbelievers respond to you in a way that seems irrational when you're giving them the gospel. It happened to the apostles, and it can certainly happen to us today. All right, so the Sanhedrin... They're ready to stamp out the gospel. Their M.O. is for that very reason. And it seems, at least up to this point, that they're inching closer and closer to that end. So we come to our very final scene in this narrative, Gamaliel's faulty take. And so let's pick it up in verse 34. A Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was respected by all people, stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered the men to be taken outside for a little while. And so a new character has emerged, and that is Gamaliel. And he seems like kind of an odd cat. Yet, Gamaliel was a very respected cat as well. He was a Pharisee, part of the Sanhedrin party that promoted faithfulness to God's law. He was a rabbi of rabbi. And again, everyone respected this man. We are told that Paul was educated at his feet. One rabbinic scholar upon his death said, the glory of the law ceased and purity and abstinence died. Gamaliel was mature, well-respected, careful, and esteemed by all. And so in this scene, Gamaliel comes and he pauses the trial, sending the apostles outside because he doesn't want the Sanhedrin to act on pure emotions. He's saying, hold up, we need to press a, we need to call a timeout. We need to hold the phones. Let's talk about this so you're not doing something out of pure emotion. And so this is what he does. He gives the council this short history lesson of other movements in the past. And what these movements, what the history lesson that he gives them, these movements have one thing in common. When the leader goes, so does the movement. 
His first example is a man named Thaddeus who rose up claiming to be somebody who had 400 followers. Yet when he died, his followers dispersed. And secondly, he reminds him of Judas the Galilean who rose up in the days of the census. Exact same thing happened. When he perished, his followers scattered. So in verse 38, Gamaliel gives like the purpose of why he's saying that, the crux of the argument. Gamaliel uses his history lesson to prove a point, and he says, So in the present case, I tell you, stay away from these men and leave them alone. If this plan or this work is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You may even be found fighting against God. And so as I've been wrestling with this statement this whole week, it's like initially I thought to myself, is Gamaliel kind of advocating for the apostles? Like, is he kind of a spy behind enemy lines seeking to disrupt the Sanhedrin council? It's like, what am I to think about Gamaliel? But as I studied and I looked at commentaries and I heard what other people said and really meditated on this, I don't think it's any one of those. I actually think it's the exact opposite. You see, Gamaliel seems to equate this movement of the apostles to other movements and adopts this kind of laissez-faire approach. Just wait and see what happens, and it's likely that they will just fall away like the rest of the messianic movements. You don't need to take action because there's a very real chance it's just going to fizzle out. And his logic about if it will stand, if it's of God, it will stand, and if it's of men, it will fail, I'm not going to lie, that seems kind of faulty too. In the end, that certainly is the case, but in the short term, it's like we all have to affirm that there certainly could be good godly plans that don't stand and evil plans that succeed. I'm not convinced that Gamaliel's principle is airtight, and even further, that he's advocating for the apostles. And here's why. Gamaliel saw this movement as just another movement. His opinions were entirely objective. The story of Jesus of Nazareth was just another moment in history that created this type of disruption like other moments in history. He did not see it as the moment in history where God became man to reconcile the world to himself. Gamaliel was confronted with the greatest truth in all of the world, and he sits as a judge dealing with it just as any other problem that had arisen. You see, Gamaliel's biggest blunder was that he failed to respond in repentance and faith. An indifferent, unconverted man giving his pragmatic opinion on Christianity. I side with Martin Lloyd-Jones who said this. He said, poor Gamaliel, he never looked at the gospel message personally. If he had, he would have not given his great advice. Do you know what he would have done? He would have said to the Sanhedrin, We are all sinners. We are relying on the law. We think we can put ourselves right with God. I've been wrong. You are all wrong. These men are right. He would have risked death in order to say that. It's kind of when we think about Gamaliel, it's like we might think, all right, you have the apostles over here advocating for the Lord, you have the Sanhedrin over here opposing the Lord, and kind of on the fence, you have Gamaliel. But I want you all to know that there is no neutrality. Although Gamaliel is more tempered than the Sanhedrin, no, he is still opposing the Lord. Jesus says, if you're not for me, 
well, then you are against me. And Gamaliel is against the Lord. And it shows in the advice that he gives. All right. So what is the Sanhedrin's reaction to this? When well, verse 39, it says they were persuaded by him. So they warned them and sent them away. No, we got to pause. That's not what the text says. That's what happened in Acts 4. No, this account is a little different. They were persuaded by him, yet they turned up the heat and they flogged them, which means 40 lashes less than one. The Sanhedrin expected that this gross punishment would finally silence the apostles. This was their master plan to stamp out the gospel. But how did the apostles respond? What did the apostles do to this gross injustice? This is what the text says in verse 41 through 42. Then they went out from the presence of the Sanhedrin, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to be treated shamefully on behalf of the name. Every day in the temple and in various homes, they continued teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Their reaction is both moving and instructive. And again, you cannot make this up. The persecution led to praise. They were honored to be dishonored for the sake of Jesus. And this is the hallmark of true Christianity. Counting it all joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. And I want to ask you, Christian, have you ever been persecuted for the sake of the gospel? And if so, how did you respond? Did you respond with all joy? Quickly, I want to say, if you haven't ever been persecuted, I do want to say that this could be an indicator of your cowardness to share the gospel. I say that in all love. The persecution to the apostles came precisely because they opened their mouth. If they stayed silent, if they sat on the sidelines, they would have not faced persecution. But if they sat on the sidelines, then they would have never partaken in God's grand plan of redemption. I pray that we certainly would not be on the sidelines, but that we would be heralders of the gospel, speaking all the words of this life. Okay, so for those who have suffered for the sake of the gospel, how did you respond? Well, the response of the, of the apostles seems to debunk the prosperity gospel in one single swoop. When you do good, God will then return a hundredfold. I keep thinking to myself, it's like, how would a prosperity preacher teach this passage? I don't think they could because the apostles' obedience led to persecution. You see, the amazing thing is that the apostles understood that it was God who was honoring them through their suffering. Christians see it all joy to suffer for the sake of Christ. It's like a type of affirmation from the Father showing that we are truly sons and daughters of the King. Do you see your suffering in this light? I pray that we are instructed by the apostles. Also, they also they did not they not only did they rejoice in being witnesses for Jesus through suffering, they continued to be a witness through the preaching of the gospel. Throw us in prison, we will continue to proclaim the gospel. Threaten our lives, we will continue to make the name of Jesus known. Beat us half to death, Christ's name will still go forth. God's gospel cannot and will not be stamped out. And so as we're 
finishing this sermon, I want us to like take like a zoom out look of this passage. It's like we're certainly instructed by the apostles example, but I want us to walk away thinking about God who is sovereign over this whole scene. You see, as I was reading this and meditating on it, I was quickly led to think about Genesis 50:20 after Joseph upon seeing his brothers proclaim, "You planned evil against me, God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. It seems like this passage perfectly parallels with Joseph's theological confession. And I don't want us to be confused. It's not the Sanhedrin was trying to stamp out the gospel while God was reacting to their every move like a chess master reacting to the Berlin defense. You move this way, I'll react this way. No, what the Sanhedrin meant for evil, God meant it for good. God was sovereign over every single move, directly, directly ordaining everything that was happening for the sake of his name amongst all nations. The Sanhedrin's failed attempt was futile before it even started. Similar to Pharaoh in Exodus, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel, Herod in Matthew, the Sanhedrin in Acts, Nero in the 1st century, Diocletian in the 4th century, and papal opposition in the 16th century. Brothers and sisters, let's lift up our eyes to see God seated on His throne directing all things. It's like there's going to be hatred, there's going to be opposition for Christians, but God's gospel will not be stamped out. It cannot and I pray, NBC, that we would see this and we would have great confidence in the God that we serve that would lead us to proclaim his name, that would, re that would embolden us to make the name of Jesus known. So I want us to respond to this sermon by singing, O Church of Christ Invincible. And I want us to open up our um, service guides and I want us to look at verse 3. Because it's like this verse is saying exactly what is happening in this text. So it says in verse 3, it says, O church of Christ, in sorrow now, where evil lies in wait, when trials and persecutions come, this light will never fade. For though the hordes of hell may rage, their power will not endure. Our times are in the Father's hands. Our anchor is secure. This gospel will not be stamped out because our times are in the Father's hand and our anchor is secure. Let us pray. Holy Father, I pray that we are instructed by your apostles. I pray that we see what it looks like to praise you in the midst of persecution, to obey you and trust you with the outcome. But even more, I pray that we see you seated on your throne as you are sovereign over all things and that we are emboldened to continue to proclaim your gospel because our times are in your hand and our anchor is secure. In Christ's name, amen.